0: I think that a soft version of ballet is very good for Oriental dancers, but Oriental dance is not good for ballet. On a professional level, if you want to be a classical ballet dancer, your upper torso has to be so connected and I don't want to use the word tight, but strong.
1: Hello, everyone. You're listening to the Belly Dance Live podcast. I'm your host, Jana Komarnitska, and I'm thrilled to share a new portion of dance inspiration with you. If you are a new listener, welcome to the show. Don't forget to subscribe and receive automatic updates about our new episodes. And if you are a regular listener, welcome back. Please leave your reviews on whichever app you're listening. They really help me promote the show and spread awareness about baladin's art form. Plus, I really like it like hearing back from you. On this note, let's get to our today's episode. Jelena and Belly Evolution are back taking their show and programs across the globe. You know how many guests we had previously on this podcast sharing how much their experience with BDE pushed their dance career. You can have it too. Audition for Jelena's latest production and join Jungle Book cast All details at www.joinbde.com Direct link in the show notes joinbde.com Hello everyone in 2023. I hope you had fun holiday celebrations with family, friends or whichever circle, whichever environment you wanted to be. I'm also thrilled to open our new sixth season of the Beladens Live podcast with amazing interview with Horatio Sifuandos. We already had interview with Beata Sifuandos, if you remember, early in 2022, and now it's just a perfect fit to... Complete the puzzle and see the story of these two amazing artists together and their journey together, as well as the journey prior to their meeting that made this magic happen and exist in our Baladance community. Born in Colombia, Orazio started dancing at the age of five. He first studied flamenco at Seville, Spain. Later, he also danced with Ballet Folklorico Nacional de Colombia. He also followed with Classical Ballet in Poland and later gained a scholarship to the prestigious American Ballet Theatre School in New York. Eventually, he joined the San Francisco Ballet, where he was featured as a soloist. Meanwhile, he also discovered Oriental Dance, while he was exploring yoga studies, and that literally changed the course of his life and career, which we discuss in depth in our interview. So I'm not going to spoil all the things, but this is definitely the subject that you will hear uh, more in our today's conversation. We also talked about his professional ballet journey and this combination of ballet and ballet dance, because he had unique uh, experience of not just doing ballet dance, with previous ballet experience, but simultaneously pursuing career in professional ballet as a performer and ballet dance artist as a teacher and performer too. So while we often talk about benefits of ballet training for ballet dancers, today we're also going to talk about struggles that ballet dance may bring into professional ballet activities and ballet training. We also talked about uh, stage nervousness and how Horatio used yoga to conquer this uh, very common issue for performers across dance genres. We also talked about his book Confessions of a Male Ballet Dancer and uh, his lifetime journey starting from dancing as a kid to growing up, maturing, and eventually aging as a dancer and what it brings into life uh, artistic and and personal and very, very useful and meaningful reminders for uh, many of us. So I hope you will enjoy this interview. This is our first episode of 2023 of the sixth season of the Ballad Dance Live podcast. Many more to come, many more conversations, many more new guests as well as coming back guests. And I also hope just as many uh, comments and reposts from you too. (laughs) So if this conversation spoke to you and you could relate or got inspired by any of the moments, don't forget to screenshot, share with your friend, tag me. I love reposting your tags. So don't forget about social media aspect of being community and getting in touch with each other. And on this note, enjoy this interview. Thank you Stackable Drills is a tool that helps ballet dancers to drill their technique. This is your perfect guided lead and follow training companion. Maximize your practice time by following pre-made sequences or by doing your own selection of available 1 minute drills and stacking them into a playlist perfectly tailored to your own needs. You can start by levels and topics and you are guaranteed to never fast forward or skip a section again because it's all about dancing with no talking. Just press play and drill the move. Full details at stackabledrills.com. Direct link in the show notes. Hello, dear Horacio. I am so happy to feature you at the Ballet Dance Life podcast, and thank you for joining me. And thank you for starting 2023 in such an awesome way of having you on our project here.
0: <laughs> uh, welcome. Nice to meet you. And I'm, I'm curious to see what it is that you want to, um, to ask me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I would like to know absolutely everything about your dance journey, but I suggest, uh, let's start from the very beginning. So, I know that dance entered your life uh, very, very young. It was not ballet dance yet, Uh, it was other dance forms, but how how did it happen that as a kid you went to a dance school and went through the really... um, extensive dance paths, literally from the childhood?
0: Well, I was born in a family that danced a lot. So I don't really remember not ever dancing. In my family we had a very, very big family and every weekend there was a party at somebody else. And they would just clear the living room and dance and dance and dance. Of course, this was social dancing, like Mambo and the rumba in Colombia. And then when I was about six, seven years old, my father got a job to work in Spain because he built ships. And usually these jobs took a long time. So the whole family went to Seville in Spain. And there I, when we arrived, my father took us to see a flamenco show in a restaurant. And I was, I said to my mother, I have to learn that. So she took me to a flamenco school and I took my first dancing lessons at the age of, I think I was six or so, and so we lived there for a good year, and when I went back to Colombia in my hometown, I had my castanets, and my. I had learned all these things, and all my family, all my cousins, all the ones that were dancing there in this family, they, they say, oh, Horacio learned how to dance flamenco in, in Spain, let's see him dance. And so then I stood in the circle of family, and I did my show. And after I finished, there was absolute silence. Absolute silence. That was very strange. Because, um, okay, in Colombia, especially in the Caribbean coast, when you're a boy, you dance socially, but not like going to dancing school or something like that. So everybody looked like, oh. Anyway, I kept my dancing, and I kept playing my cassonette. And then later, when I was about... I was exactly 12 and a half, 13 years old. My father got another job to go to Poland. And in Poland, he had to build three ships. So we stayed there almost three years. And when I got there, I went to a school that was half British, half Polish. And there were about 5,000 kids in that school. And I didn't speak either English nor Polish. And I was sort of really traumatized by all these people and... One girl came to my rescue, who had been um, because Polish, Poland was at that time socialist. She had been in Cuba and she had learned Spanish, and she came to me and talked to me in Spanish. So I kind of feel like oh, a little bit of an oasis. And she said to me, "Have you ever seen the ballet?" And I said, "No. Well, I've heard about it because when I was I remember when I was a very very small child." There was a very famous ballerina. Her name was Margot Fontaine. I don't know if you've heard of her. And in that time, in the 60s, 70s, at that time, she was the most famous ballerina in the whole world. And there was a big spread about her in the Colombian newspaper. And my, my brother said, yes, she's a ballerina. And she danced on her points. And that sort of fascinated me that somebody could stand on the toes of her feet and so when I went to Poland and that girl said to me, have you ever seen the ballet? I said, oh, I've heard that women stand on their points, and so I'm very curious. So she took me to the ballet, and I was, I was done. The next day, I went back to the opera house all by myself. And I didn't speak any Polish or any English, but I said, you know, with my hands, I want to dance, I want to dance, and the man knew what I, what I meant. And he said, around the corner is the ballet school. So I went to the ballet school, and again, nobody spoke Spanish. And I said, I want to dance. And they said to me, come back with the translator. And I came back the next day with that girl. Her name is Eva. We're still in touch, by the way. And she said, well, after you're 13 years old, they cannot accept you. They only accept you if you're nine. Because this is an academic ballet school. You come in with nine years old, and you finish when you're 18. And they said, you can have private lessons with the choreographer. And so I went home and I said to my mother, you got to get Dad to pay for those lessons. My father made good money, and he earned in dollars, which at that time was a fortune in Poland. So he agreed to pay for the lessons, and I started taking, I said, okay, I will take Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, three times a week. And I went Monday... And the teacher sat down and talked to me for five minutes in Polish, and I had no idea what he was saying, and I knew exactly what he meant. He said, "This is hard work." I didn't know that's what he was saying. This is hard work, very serious. And then he, we went to the bar, and he went down to the floor, floor, and put my feet in an outward position. And suddenly, all that fantasy that I had experienced on the stage the night before, two days before how the, the dances would move so ethereally, the legs looked like they were arms. That old dial, that will I start, "Oh, this is really hard. But then I said to him, this cannot be just Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. This has to be every day. So I went Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And from then on, I took every day. And um Suddenly Poland was beautiful because at the beginning it was very grey and difficult. But suddenly I had found something that really was I was passionate about. And I and I went there every day and sometimes he was the choreographer of the opera house of the ballet company and he would let me watch rehearsals and it was an amazing introduction for me to ballet with a private teacher. Then we went back to Colombia a few years later, and there was no ballet school in Cartagena. It's my hometown is Cartagena, so uh, for a while I was sort of sort of lost. And then a little bit later, I went back to Bogota, which is the capital, and there I joined the Ballet Folklórico Nacional de Colombia. This is the national company that dances folk dances from everywhere. It was a very nice performing experience for me and I learned all the regional dances, a lot of drums, a lot of percussion because the roots of these dances, some of them are from Africa, not all of them, but some of them are from Africa. So I learned all the dances and we toured Colombia for about a year. And then I discovered that really what I wanted to do was classical ballet. And I found a very good school with a lovely teacher who encouraged me. And uh, that school was staging a can You know the can And so they invited the French attaché, the cultural French attaché from the French embassy to come and see the can mm-hmm. And he saw me and said, "What well, that boy, he, he has something. How about if I help you get a scholarship to the United States? And then he found me a scholarship in New York, and I ended up at the American Ballet Theater School in New York. And it was very intense training, 10 boys or young men and 10 young ladies on the scholarship in a school that had like 800 people. But we were in this class and it was very, very intense. And I stayed there for a year. And then from there, I got another invitation to go to the San Francisco Ballet School in San Francisco, California. I went and I was in the school for a year. Then I was an apprentice for another year. And then I got my contract as a a professional ballet dancer. And during this time, I used to get horrified to be on stage because the productions were very big, huge productions, and big responsibility, big orchestra. And I thought, I need to learn to control myself before I go on stage. It's not possible that I'm going to go out there and be so nervous and so excited in my head that I cannot, that I have no cl- clarity in my mind about what I'm doing. So then somebody suggested that I go to a yoga class. There was a yoga school around the corner, and uh, I went to this wonderful yoga teacher who I still follow, to this day, I still follow his method. And he happened to be married to a belly dancer. Mm. My guy never teach. He had the school in the same place same location there was a yoga room and a belly dance room. And I just went for the yoga class and every now and then I would hear the music next door. And one day the yoga teacher was out of town and he had a replacement. And I thought, Hmm, maybe I'll try the belly dance today. And I took the belly dance class and I remember some of those percussions were a lot like the Colombian rhythms that I have danced in the Ballet Floor. And she showed me some movements, masmoodi, and some movements with the hips going right and left. And for me, this was completely natural to move the hips. It was nothing unusual. So I, I took another class, I and mean, I took another class, and then she said to me, we're having a school recital, where to perform. I said, what? I mean, I'm used to dancing what I'm told to do. And the ballet company, you go and they tell you, you do this and you do it. You you obey. And you can put in some of, your, of yourself in it, but it's inside of a very tight format. And the idea of being able to do whatever I wanted sounded quite fascinating. And so then I said, okay, well, I'll organize the few steps that I learned and see what happens. And then I went. I went out there and I had no idea what I was doing but I had a good time and it was a huge success and from then on I kept taking classes and taking classes and I sort of got the virus. And then somebody said to me, oh, you know, there's this other teacher there and they organized the festival and there's this and there's that. So I started going to every teacher that I could and then one thing led to another and after one year I got a telephone call from Miami mm-hmm. and I said, what? Yes, I've heard about you. You have to come to Miami and teach a workshop. And I'm like, What me? Teach? Yes, yes, you come from the ballet and you know a lot of things, so you, you teach. And I'm like, I was completely soft. But then I said, Okay, I come. I sat down and organized all the steps that I have learned. I wrote them down carefully. I had such a list of steps. Then I went there and I could do five percent of what I had prepared. And I realized, oh, the women they're beautiful in their own way. And I kind of like that they were not also skinny like the ballet dancers, you know, because ballerinas they have to be thin. These were normal women and I thought this is a fantastic platform for normal women to have opportunities to express themselves. But they're missing something. They're missing posture, they're missing structure, they're missing how to turn. So I thought, hmm, I can do something here. And then I started to organize my way of teaching one thing led to another, and that year I was being invited to teach all over the United States. But I had to ask permission from the San Francisco Ballet because I was under contract. So I couldn't, just, I couldn't just go. I was dancing seriously. We had Romeo and Juliet, we had the Nightcracker. we had Swan Lake, we had all these ballets, and I was on a schedule. A schedule was very tight. We had dance, ballet class every morning and then five hours of rehearsal and then performance during the season and sometimes off-season we had no performances but still very intense rehearsal. So if I got invited to go say, I don't know, I went to Boston, to Buffalo, to Los Angeles, everywhere, I to go to the office and say I've been invited to teach and perform wherever, can I go? And then they would look at the schedule, when it was, and they'd say, well, okay. But you have to say that you are a guest from the Francisco. You must say that. At the beginning, it was okay. And then after a while, the invitations came more and more and more. And one time, I even got my, uh, uh, my replacement to dance for me while I went somewhere else. And then the, the choreographer said, where's where Saturn such is dancing for him because he's in somewhere. And then they started to get, you know, nervous. But still, I, I kept performing that and that at the same time, which was a challenge because the ballet technique is like you were a costume. Mm-hmm. And the is completely the other, the other way. Yeah. So I had problems with my technique. Not so much with the oriental technique, but with the ballet technique. And then I had to go and do a lot of sit-ups to get myself tied again. But the choreographer made a ballet for me with oriental dance and ballet mix. And I had many girls around me. It was a huge hit. And he liked the fact that it was sort of something different. And he liked the innovative things and contemporary things. And every year a ballet company has to prepare the following season. So they sit down, the, the choreographer sits down with the administration because San Francisco Ballet is huge. They have a huge budget every year. After the American Ballet Theater and New York City Ballet in the United States, San Francisco Ballet is the biggest company in the United States. They have like 80 dancers, 100 dancers. They have the orchestra, it's like 70 members in the orchestra, three or four conductors, a huge wardrobe department. You can't imagine. And they have um, many very wealthy families in the United States that give every year. They give millions and millions and millions so that this can happen. It's a huge thing. And then they sit down every year and they plan the following season. And this choreographer said, well, I want to do um, Alice in Wonderland with sets like this, and I want this, and I want this, and it costs this much. And I want to do a ballet with a small swimming pool on stage, with the dancers of the semi-mute, and it costs this much. And these were incredible ideas. But imagine a swimming pool on the opera house stage, it cost a fortune. And so they were having back and forth the discussions, I want to do this, but I'm not getting the money, and so the director was getting a lot of contra. And then they said, he said, well, if I can't get it, then I guess I have to go. And the next day he had his resignation letter on, the, on his desk. So they fired him. Hmm. And was, I was one of his favorite dancers, so I got fired too. Because they were saying, oh, he's a better dancer, and blah, blah, blah. so then at one point, because of my connection with the belly dance, I love my job at the Francisco Ballet. I've been there for eight years. I was shocked because I was very um, disciplined and I was there every morning on time and I did my work and I danced with some of the best ballerinas. And So it was not about the dancing, it was a political thing. But the thing is, I was out. So. First of all, I took a very big breath and also how they did it. I got the, I got the message from my answering machine.
1: Ah.
0: I took a breath and I felt the cold come in my spine and I hold my breath for maybe 10 to 2 seconds and then I exhale and I think, okay, well, I won't have to deal with this and that and that because it is not all, it all sounds very wonderful, but it's also politically and a lot of intrigues and jealousies. And so the people in charge, they have their favorites, and if you're not their favorite, then they they play games with you, with the casting. It's not an easy life. So I called my yoga teacher. And I said, oh, I lost my job, what do I do? And then he said to me, come to talk. And he took me for a ride, and he said... I know it's a shock, but be glad, because you're young, and you still have a lot. If you stay there, they take all the juice out of you, and after you end up standing on a corner holding a flag, playing some character role, and you have no chance for artistic expression, So just relax, go to the office, take all the photographs that you can find, and all the documents that you can find. And then turn you back and go. So I did that. I went to the office secretly because it seems it's not allowed to take all the stuff. I went. and found every photo that I found. I took, and then that was it. I I was out. So I was a little bit um, shocked. And my teacher had a, a a retreat in Central America, a yoga retreat. And all this time, I have been doing yoga every day anyway, because it sort of balanced me out. So I went to this yoga retreat, and I spent three weeks there, doing like five, six hours of yoga every day, and also fasting and fruits. And there was even days when there was no speaking, like silence. It was very good for me, because I had, I thought I was going to be in San Francisco ballet, until death was Because And I was very devoted, I was very disciplined and did my job. But anyway, then little by little I went back to belly dance and I, I had my job teaching around the United States. And then um, I kind of went back to ballet and found another company, not so prestigious like San Francisco Ballet, but very nice. The the director had a daughter. Her daughter was a ballerina and she was beautiful and she knew the a partner. And the nice thing about it, even though it was not as prestigious, it was that I didn't have to compete for all. I had a contract to dance with that with that woman. And I didn't have to compete because San Francisco Ballet, you have up to nine casts mm-hmm. and only three shows. So you can imagine what that's like. Nine swans or 9 Julien, are firing for 3 performances, so it's tough, and here I knew I I got my contract and I danced with that girl and I always did the lead role and that was it, and and she was a brilliant ballet teacher, she taught me so many things, she was like excellent about the anatomy, how the whole thing worked with ballet, the pirouettes, the jumping, which muscle goes where it was. Fantastic. So I got excellent coaching. And during that time, she also had no problem, but I did study that shows. And I got a job at a restaurant in San Francisco called Pasha. A very posh restaurant. Beautiful. Very elegant with, um, hanging red velvet, you know, from the ceiling. And I even had live music. Well, there were only four musicians, but after all, it was nice and I had a very, very good drummer and a beautiful canoe, and I did my shows there um, Fridays and Saturdays, mm-hmm. unless I had a ballet performance. So I kind of found my rhythm between one and the other, and and I had a routine that I performed at that restaurant for five years, the same routine, the same dance, for five years, which it made me, Seem seems like it's not a good thing, but I think it's a very good thing. If I have an advice for any dancers, I think they should have certain dance in the repertoire and they should perform them over and over and over and over again. Because with the time, you find the nuance that you didn't have at the beginning. You start to hear the music differently. You start to find more depth and more volume in the melodies. That was my experience there. After five years, I just knew that music and the drummer and I were telepathically con- uh, connected. It was such an awesome experience, really. And during that time, there was um, a very famous festival in, in San Francisco called Racasa. It was huge. And the author was invited to come from Germany. Uh, everybody was talking about this fantastic dancer from Germany and she so I went and I saw her dance, I was very impressed, and everybody would, oh, wow, when she performed at Rakaasa, you could hear a pin drop on the auditorium. Normally, everybody there was a dancer every five minutes, every ten minutes, and blah, 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 and the people who were selling. When she performed, all the selling stopped. Everybody was looking, and she had that magic, and I thought, hmm, she has something that it's like some of the magic that some of the ballerinas have. That special, special magnetism. So I went and talked to her and sort of connected, and then next year she came again, and I invited her to come to Pascha to do the show, and she invited me to come to Germany for a tour. And I said, well, if we come to Germany, we have to have matching costumes. So I took her to my tailor, and we made costume together. And then I said, well, Berlin is a big town to dance for the first time. as a do it. And I had a job in Hawaii every year, anyway. And I had, the San Francisco Ballet had been going to Hawaii on tour every year. Imagine. I was so lucky. Five-star hotel was in Hawaii every year. It was amazing. And I had discovered the belly dance community in Hawaii, mm-hmm. in all. And so I said, why don't you come with me to Hawaii? We perform there for the first time, so we break the ice. And then six months later, we are in Berlin, and it's not the first time, so it's not such a shock. She said, okay. So she arrived in Hawaii, and we had the show, and well, Hawaii is uh, very romantic, and we connected beautifully, and before you know it, I (laughs) proposed. Then we've been together everything. But anyway, that's another thing. We did come to Berlin and had a huge success together here. At that time, the belly dance had really exploded in Berlin. She had formed the very first school for belly dancing Oriental dance here in, in Berlin. She had a lot of students. And when I arrived, I realized that my days in the ballet were sort of coming to an end because I didn't feel I was going to go any further with it. I was in the mid-30s, and my body was trying to feel like, hmm, if I keep going with this thing, it's going to start to hurt. And so then I went to my dear teacher, and I said, well, I'm engaged, and I'm going to leave. So I will dance for another six months. I gave her six months to find another partner for her daughter. I didn't just go like that. I gave her half a year. And then I danced a couple of more productions, and then I sold my car, sold my Uh, stereo packed everything I had and came completely without thinking, came to Germany to be with the other and so I joined her school and we expanded the school we went everywhere all over Germany, all over the world really, together and sort of had this mutual passion to do something to take the dance and take it further. At this time it was not like right now. Right now the dancers have so much available. There is so much music available, there's so many videos. You go on YouTube, you click and you have find anybody. It's not like now. It was not easy to find information, to find music, to find even costumes. So we were in a way sort of breaking ground for for many things and then we started going to Cairo together and going to Taylor's and bringing, you know, I I have been in this world where dance was bigger than life. It was huge. It was the big productions. It was the big capes and the big crowns. And the wardrobe department was amazing. And so for me, this was normal. And I said, well, Berata, let's do this for you. Let's do this for you. So we brought an element of couture to, the, to her costume. And we were both into the same passion, so we would go shopping and look, buy this fabric and look, buy this fabric, and everything was for the show. We started doing a show called Oriental Fantasy, with some of our students and, and Beata and I doing each in solos and duets, and uh, we just couldn't wait to do one more and to do ideas with big skirts and big things it was a lot of fun and then we went to Cairo and discovered interesting tailors and at that time it was not easy to find music so we said well let's see if we can produce our own music and then we became music producers when we did that we uh, started getting to know people in the music world in Cairo we got to know such interesting artists violin players, canon players, composers. The dark side of it is that, of course, they saw dollar signs in us because we were foreigners. But the bright side was that, as music producers, we expanded our knowledge of Oriental Dance by learning all these new rhythms, learning how the whole structure of Oriental Dance music is set up, and it sort of brightened up our way of teaching we found ourselves better teachers because of the music. Because we got so deep into the music and we, would, we made some very good friends in Cairo and they taught us about all the great uh, composers the great songs that were performed. Sometimes we were to see a show until 3 4 in the morning and we saw all the dancers in all the clubs and I have this analytical mind so I got a lot of information from just looking at them took classes from all the teachers and kept coming back to Germany and putting on the shows. And then the ATA had such interesting ideas about, about costumes. And at that time, I must say, the fashion was really boring. And I can tell you, really, not because she's my wife, but because, you know, we are together, but I can tell you 100%, the Atta made such an influence on the fashion that we're going All these girls now, they have no idea that the Atta was the first one to make a mermaid skirt. The very first one to make a skirt. Mermaid. And now look, all, all the girls are doing it. They don't know where that came from. At that time the skirts were like this or like this. She's the first one to take it in, in the knee Yeah, a few months later, or a few years later, there was this fashion where they all wore wore a cloth. You know, what is a cloth? It was a skirt that was sort of straight, and then on the left side had like an extra piece of fabric. Mm -hmm. The the, the designers used to call that a cloth. And everybody was wearing it. Okay, so Beata said, hmm, turn the opening to the back and put the cloth in the back. Uh, it looked like like a Hollywood star. After that, that designer made it in every color, and she sent it to all over the world because she had clients all over the world. But so it really was Beata responsible for creating the transition. Um, she made a tremendous impact. Also, we were doing music and CDs and putting it out there which was our, we were putting all our savings into it. During one time, at one point, it was profitable, and then the technique changed and made people available to copy the music. That was at the beginning of the, the disaster for us. So we stopped producing music because of that. But, you know, we had uh, an amazing time in Cairo and we did a lot of stuff here in, in Germany, a lot of really great productions, every year in new production. And then we decided to go on tour, it would be too complicated to take people, so we made a show just the two of us, two hours and twenty minutes, just the Atta and I. We each had six solos and four duets, and the artists is very good with the microphone. We had a light designer and uh, and a girl to change it. So the costume changes were very fast. And like this, we went to Canada, we went to Japan, we went to the United States, all over the world, we showed Oriental Fantasy, and we were successful and we had a nice time. And, uh, well, you know, things changed. And then came a, a very big festival here in Berlin that Beata organized with a contest. The yeah, author was the first one here in Germany to have the idea to make a contest. Now there is a contest everywhere. But she was the first one to come to this idea. And honestly, I said to her, are you crazy? <laughs> Why do you want to do this? And she said, no, no, it's the right time. It's the right time to do this. She organized a contest and we started bringing all these amazing guests. We brought Rachel Bryce to, to, to Germany, who's an incredible artist. We brought uh, artists from Egypt, and we really um, made an effort to, to do something good on a stage, not in a restaurant or in some drinking venue. We really put it on a stage with sets, with costumes, with a big uh, backdrop. Backdrop. We even got an, a painter here from the opera, from the Berlin Opera, to paint the backdrop for us by hand. So we really put our whole heart and soul into this. And then, after a while, I must say with some sadness that the community in Berlin stopped supporting us. At one point it was great. They all came, and at one point the interest stopped, and then they had to say, well, I'm not bringing all these expensive dancers here for the audience not to support us. They would schedule events at the same date on their studios so that the students wouldn't come to us. And when the thing became like that, then we decided, well, it's time for something else. And we, we live outside of Berlin anyway. We don't live in Berlin. We live about 45 minutes outside. We would drive back and forth, back and forth. Oh, because we like the countryside. You know, we, we have a garden and you can look, you can see here as far as I can see. Beautiful. So we decided to maybe give it a try here in the countryside, and so we opened uh, our classes here in Belich. it's called Belich. it's in Brandenburg. And at the beginning, because people is a village, nobody knew here who we are, and. Not that I really need that for my ego, really, I mean, we just went with new people and they said there's somebody there teaching classes and I figured, well, belly dance alone is not going to do it. So then we started with children's classes, with yoga, with dance fitness, with stretching, and the people came, not that anybody knew that we had been all over the world dancing Oriental or that we had any kind of a name or anything. I don't care. I don't have such an ego that I need people to know what I've done. For me today is today and that's it. It helps sometimes for the for the business, but it was just a new approach and we had the classes here and we kept teaching in Berlin. And at one point having two venues was too much. So we decided to close the school in Berlin and teach only here. Which was very fortunate because not long after that Came the corona and the lockdown. And many of the schools in Berlin had to close anyway. But here we had already um, sort of created a new new environment, new students, and very lovely people. And now we have a very nice school. It's not far from home, it's about seven-minute drive. And it's a very nice place, and we have uh Children's classes and oriental is still going on, not as many classes as before, but still alive. And uh, I can teach yoga, which I've been doing for a long time. And I have enough time to, Beata loves her garden, she loves roses and she loves animals. She, we have four cats and three dogs. And she feeds the birds every morning and she has the plants and I like to have time for my private yoga class every morning. I cannot live without it. I have to, before I eat anything, I exclude myself and I do my yoga practice. And that sort of keeps me sane. So, basically, that's that's it i started at the beginning and this
1: is where we are now wow what a what a story and uh, how many turns and twists have happened to it and i'm so happy that we are doing this interview because we did interviews beata not long time ago and now you know like uh, the part of the story that you start working together they kind of like from both interviews pieces come together and it's so interesting to hear like from both perspectives so thank you for sharing uh as well as from the very beginning i have so many thoughts and 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 questions um, uh, about that part too like and uh thank you for sharing the insights of you basically managed to combine both ballet and ballet dance career for quite a long time and before you were basically forced to, to quit, not even quit, because you came back to ballet afterwards, again, just to different companies. So you did manage to do something that for many people like, oh, ballet and ballet dance, they're so different. Like uh, they're not combinable. And here you're not only combining in your training, which is very typical for us to talk of professional ballet dancers need to take ballet classes to improve their lines, to improve their posture, their balance. There are many de- benefits, but we are talking from, training point of view to benefit ballet dance career and here you're an example of something that for many people would seem impossible combining professional careers in both dance stars and this is absolutely incredible
0: well you know i think that a soft version of ballet is very good for oriental dancers but oriental dance is not good for ballet on a professional level it's if you want to be a classical ballet dancer, your upper torso has to be so connected, and I don't want to use the word tight, but strong, very strong, in order to keep those those jump, the jumping and the pirouettes. And then Oriental dance is going from one side to the other and undulating in all directions. So I remember after I danced at Pasha, I would go Monday morning and do. 400 sit-ups. 400 abdominal exercises to get myself back tight again. And then on the weekend I would be like this one more time. It was a challenge. But also interesting. I think that now um, I'm lucky to have the knowledge to bring it to into the Oriental dance. Right. Nowadays there's many girls Who are ballet trained. There are some girls who have actually gone through the academic ballet training in some of the famous ballet schools. They start when they're little, and they're very small. And then when they grow up, because it takes about eight years, when they start to grow up and they start to develop feminine, then they are not accepted. That doesn't mean that they're, that they are not a good dancer. They just have a normal, uh, Feminine body. And so some of them, they go into ballroom dancing, or they go into folklore, or some of them do belly dance, and they are such good dancers. You see so a lot of the Russian girls, they are, they come from the Russian ballet school, and they are so accomplished. It's great. So um, in the earlier days, the technique was not like it is now. Now there are many more dancers who are very accomplished, and to teach a class, if I go teach a class somewhere and some of the girls are there, for so them it's no problem to do some turning or to wander on their legs or to point their feet properly. And they have a sense of posture, turning, balance. So it's very nice.
1: You also mentioned earlier about yoga and the role of yoga in your training. And it was very interesting because you mentioned that you decided to go to yoga because of your nervousness of stage. And you mm. were afraid that you can't uh, like control your body, your emotions. And then you decided to go to yoga. Why you chose yoga for this purpose specifically? Like, oh because of that? And did it help you with conquering your anxiety before your, uh, in the beginning of your dance career? And if you remember your very first show on the big stage, like, uh, how did it go? And did yoga actually help with specifically those goals? Because yoga have uh, many ben- different benefits, but you mentioned that your initial push to go to yoga was specifically for, for that reason.
0: Yeah, well, I had actually been interested in yoga before that. I had um, in my home. My father had books about yoga when I was growing up. I remember them. And also, when I was in Bogota, before I went to the United States for a time, I lived in an ashram in the Satya Satyananda Ashram, and that was my very first introduction to yoga. And I became a vegetarian. And I um, started learning the the basics about yoga and meditation. But then when I went to the United States, I went to New York, and I went to a Hare Krishna Center on Sundays, because they had free food, and I didn't have money. They had free vegetarian food, and they always tried to get me to become a Hare Krishna. (laughs) So I said, no, I can find myself without being a Hare Krishna. But I saw there um, a play about Krishna where he painted himself blue. It was very interesting, you know, this image of... Krishna all with the blue skin so when I was in in San Francisco and I had this nervous energy before the show then I went to the school and I found this incredible teacher I looked into his eyes and I knew right away that guy is my yoga teacher he was very kind and he spoke with depth and so I was fascinated by his method and I follow it to this day and then after I started doing yoga, before the performance, I could sort of put myself into a, a more relaxed state of mind. And I was able to to perform with a more clarity in my mind. Because it's not possible that you go on stage and you're so excited that you don't know what you're doing. And then your mind plays tricks on you. To do oriental dance it's not that difficult. I don't think it's that so difficult. That's why it's very difficult. You have technical challenges. You can't imagine doing the jumps and doing this, this work, this balancing and the spirit. It's so difficult. The level of concentration that is required is very high. So if you're not centered and really with it, and you have to have a certain kind of calmness, you're not calm, if you're too excited, you fall. It's simple as that. So in a way, the the yoga and the meditation help me to find my center and help me to go before the performance. The moments before you perform are important. That so you don't you don't talk to people, that you don't are not scattered. Then you center yourself, and you go into silence, and you visualize that what it is that you want to do. And then your performance flows better, and you don't make mistakes. And I tell my students, please be quiet before you perform. Don't be talking to each other and <laughs> be scattered, you have to be centered, very important. So I highly recommend it.
1: So in your practice, did you do a yoga and meditation session just before performance or just by doing yoga and meditation on a regular basis, it kind of brought uh, this calmness into your performance days too?
0: Well, I do it on a regular basis. I do it every day, seven days a week. And before I perform, I bring that energy into it. Before the performance, I... I find a corner behind the stage and I, am quiet and I center myself and no excitement, long breath, very long, slow breath. I'm repeating my mantra and there's a mantra. I repeat my mantra and then I feel like I'm collected and very quiet and very, very still. And then when I go on stage and I explode, but not out of control. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a controlled explosive mm-hmm, I see. And I think that really all serious artists, they, they do that in their own way. I've talked to many of them. That doesn't mean that they necessarily say their mantra of them. But some of them that I've spoken to, they also like to go into a very private space before the perform. I have met some very fascinating artists that say the same thing. And also being backstage with all these great people. I've noticed that they basically intuitively, they all do it. but so they go inside and they're quiet. I highly recommend it. I actually decided to put some yoga clips on YouTube lately. This last year I put about 10 clips of yoga on YouTube. So if any of your listeners are interested, they can go. We have a channel, Beata and I. And there's some of the yoga effects about relaxing, about stretching and meditation. It's all there. Just click my name and say, oh, that's the difference of yoga I know. And also, be have, have, have to have teaching lessons on YouTube. We decided to put everything we have, all the shows, everything is on YouTube.
1: Wow. Well, I definitely will include link uh, uh, to your YouTube channel, to the show notes, just as other links. So... Uh, our listeners can directly find them there and then check. And that's great. Uh, it's a great tool that some of them can have, maybe do some of those sessions, uh, uh, if not on a regular basis, but at least, you know, like prior to the performances days to calm down the energy, at least, at least that element to bring in their life. One more thing that I would like to ask you, uh, because uh, you also, at some point of your dance journey, you decided to write a book. And it was a book, um, Confessions of Male Ballet Dancer. Yes. Why did you decide to write it, and what was the process?
0: Well, I decided to write this book because I felt that some of the experiences that I had in the ballet dance world, coming from the ballet world, were so outrageous that it had to be it had to be put on paper. We were in Australia. Uh, quite a few years ago with a very nice lady who spoke with us and we happened to study with the same teacher, his name was Ibrahim Farah, He was a big teacher in New York at one point, great man, great, great, great teacher and she had also studied with him and so we were sitting in the restaurant and I was telling her about my experience with Ibrahim Farah and she also telling me that she studied with him and we were laughing and then I was telling her all these stories and she said, you have to write a book. Please promise me that you will do that. She made me promise her that I write a book. So I said, okay. I started writing, and then I wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote. And after a while, I sent it to a friend of mine, and he said, this is so boring. It only it has only uh, events, but you have to put more of yourself in it. So I let it go for six months, and then I wrote again, and I decided to go all the way and open my heart and really open up and be completely honest, and so I did. Mm. The thing is, we printed 500 books a few years ago, and now there's only five left. But I'm putting it online as an ebook, as an electronic book, with all the photos and everything. So this is my project for this month. So it'll be available on, I don't know which platform, but that's what I'm doing right now, putting it on as an electronic book. Called Confessions of a Male Belly Dancer.
1: It says the confessions of a male belly dancer. So I must ask, which was the most difficult confession to put in this book?
0: <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, since it is in the book, I not as say it. when I was a small child I was sexually abused. Mm. And that was difficult to put in there. But I do it. Because I think that many many people have this experience. And they are they take this experience as something very dark in their adult years. You know, they think when I was a little boy or a little girl, something but that, that I was four years old, so I had no control. So, you know, it I've known all the people that have had that and they say, Oh, Now I have to be unhappy for the rest of my life because of what happened to me when I was a child. And that's not necessary so. For me, it has taught me to forgive. If you are not able to forgive, you cannot go like that until your death. You have to forgive. You have to forgive even the people that do the most horrible things to you. You have to go inside your heart and be able to forgive And be free. If people do bad things to you, forgive them. them. Then you're free. And that was my lesson. So I had a hard time for, for some time I had a hard time with that going back to those memories. But then at one point I decided that I would forgive this person. Probably not even alive anymore. But he's something bad to me and not only him other people we had i could go on and on about people that do bad things for you you have to go inside your heart and forgive people that do bad things to you because then you can be free that's the lesson that i learned from that and so i put that in my book mm, well,
1: thanks for sharing that's uh, pretty uh...
0: well uh, it's it's in there black and white anyway so that was difficult to to write and also my birth date <laughs> I had some friends at that time when I when I was writing the book and I was saying, Oh you know, there's there's something about the dancer when you become more adult you become start become aware of your aging, that you don't look the same like you look when you were young and there's this taboo about dancers becoming older and so I thought, Oh, maybe I should not put my birth date but then I did. the hell with it. It's Life is how it is. We are born. We are young. We are teenagers. We are adults. We get older and it's okay. It's okay when you are older, you have something else to offer as a dancer. And also, many people, many dancers especially, are so scared of getting old. They think it's something horrible that's coming. And I don't find it like that. I think it's actually quite wonderful. Really, I'm not afraid of I think it's wonderful to have a life when you're when you're young. Life is like this, and when later, like like this, and you have to embrace it, embrace it as it is, and not try to constantly be putting something in your lips to be like this and to be young. It's ridiculous. You see how people they they pay thousands and thousands to avoid the aging. You know, it's okay to be older. To have a little white hair or some lines, it's life. So, hmm. I, I that was another thing. I confess my age. Hmm.
1: Why not? You <laughs> wrote this book in two thousand nine, and today is two thousand twenty three. Uh, so, in, if we imagine, if we imagine that you were writing this book today. Would you add anything to it or maybe change anything in it if it was written today and not in 2009?
0: Well, uh, because it's been a while already and I've had a little bit more life, perhaps I should have waited a few more years to write it so that I would have more to say about what it is to be older when you're a dancer. Now, at that time, I was relative, I was quite a few years younger so I didn't know of course. And because I think it's a very important message for for younger dancers or for those dancers who think that getting older is something terrible. It isn't. And maybe that's one thing that I would That I would say it's okay to be to come into a later year. If what's not good is to be sick. That's different. Yes. Getting older is one thing, getting sick is another. So old and sick, no good. Old and okay, good. (laughs) You you follow what I'm saying, right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's a matter of taking care of yourself, starting young.
0: (laughs) Because Beata and I are very much into being healthy. We are, we eat. For us, the food is a big deal. We eat very, very conscious, very healthy and wholesome eating. Every day for us, the food is a, a celebration of life every day. I, I go to the kitchen, I cook every single day, and we, for us, the eating and the being um, in the natural life is a lot. And uh, it's very important when you get older, you get the you get the receipt, so to speak. How you live, then you get the payback. And sometimes it's sad to see how people, what they do to the body. you know, they abuse, and then later, you're going to sick. It's not good. So for us, it's to be healthy, it's a big deal. And so I'm very grateful. And I meditate every day. And I give some of my meditation in gratitude. Gratitude is very important. There are some yoga schools that the only thing that they do is they sit and meditate on gratitude. That's all. They sit and meditate and they grateful. And when you express that, in your heart, you, you send that message to all the cells of your body. I had a very interesting experience just a few weeks ago because I'm teaching regular yoga classes. I don't have that many students, but I have a nice group. And a new student came, a lady, and then after three classes she said, oh, only after three classes I feel so good. And I had so many therapies because I've, I've suffered from depression for a long time. And I went to psychologists and I went to this and I went to that and now with only three yoga sessions I feel better already. I said, oh, congratulations. A few weeks later she comes to me and she said, can I talk to you after the class? She talked to me and she broke down in tears and she said, I'm still fighting with this depression. I am, I am in danger of killing myself. Of course, I got really worried for a moment because I'm I'm a yoga teacher but I'm not trained psychologist. I just teach people how to stretch, how to relax, how to meditate. Simply, I'm not a guru or anything that. I, I, I'm not qualified to, to really um, advise people on that level. You know, I could get sued. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's, it's quite a lot of information to, to digest. Yeah, so mm-hmm.
0: then I, I, I took a step back and I said, go home, take a little book, before you go to bed, write three things for which you're grateful. Do that every day. And also repeat the mantra, which we have a mantra in the yoga, peace, harmony, well-being. So I said that to her, and the next week she came with a smile. Mm-hmm. So the woman that wanted to kill herself the week before came into the class smiling, and gratitude is very important. If we forget to be grateful for all the gifts that the universe gives us, all you need to do is look out the window. If you decide to do that, you will find more and more and more reasons to be grateful. People forget and they're so spoiled. And they complain and complain and complain and complain about this, complain about that. Instead are still looking back and saying, I have this and I have that and I have so many things to be grateful for. And then your life turns into a flower
1: yeah so true well one thing that i'm def- definitely grateful for is for you to agree in being on this podcast and taking time to share your dance experience and your dance story which is so inspiring and it's such an awesome way to start 2023 listening to such inspiring uh dance story and inspiring in so many different ways so thank you so much for sharing and for being on our project. <laughs>
0: Thank you for thinking of us, and anytime well stay in touch. maybe you feel like taking a yoga class okay
1: oh i will I will definitely <laughs> check your youtube channel that's for sure for yoga okay. classes and before, and before I let you go, I just have one one um last question which is our traditional question we have one question which i ask every single guest of the podcast at the end of interview regardless of what we talked about and we with you briefly briefly touched on it but i think it would be a very cool way to summarize and the question is what makes you fall in love with belly dance again and again so you keep doing it for so many years Well,
0: I suppose a big part of it is music, and well, the dance is different now than when I started. And if I am going to be completely honest, I'm not sure that if I would start now that I would fall in love with it. When I started, the dancers they they danced differently. It was more organic, and uh, the wife of my yoga teacher when she performed. She had some, something so bright coming out of her eyes and I fell in love with it through her and I saw some other dancers around the United States. They were each different. And then when we went to Egypt, you know, to see Mona Saeed and Dina and all this with big orchestras, But they each were different and individual and now the girls, they dance very aggressive. Of course, the dance has to change with the time. It's something we have to accept. No dance stays the same. Through the decades, it's changing. But it's changed in a sort of aggressive way. And if I would see that as a man, I would become scared. Because the girls dance because of the contest. They feel they have to compete with each other. And they dance very short. When we went to Canada the first time, I, I, the curtain opens up and the orchestra played, and five minutes before the dancer came. And when she came out, she walked, and sort of spread her joy of the beauty, and then came to the center. And then she walked in the other direction. She walked three, four, five rounds, and then she go in the center, and she just a small hip drop, and she'd build, and build the, the steps, little by little. In 45 minutes and one hour, she gave you so much. Now the girls, they have to compress it in three minutes for the contest so they feel that they have to do a lot. And that is dangerous for the girls. When the dancer dances free and she's not concerned about competing and about putting all the steps quickly, then it's a different energy. And when the dance is so fast and so aggressive, it could kill it. So there's a danger there. I tell the girls, of course you have to be with the time, but don't forget the past. It's the past that made me fall in love with it. And there's still dancers that are performing like that. And those are the ones that keep me interested.
1: <laughs> well, wow, that's a really great way to summarize and remind about uh, uh, good lesson for dancers. We use yes. time, but remember the past. Learn to relax. We're
0: yeah. to relax, because the dancing is relaxed. The dancers that I saw that made me fascinate, be fascinated, they were so relaxed about it. They took the time, taking the time so that the audience can sort of, sort of fall into a trance. into hypnosis. That's important. And not be sort of afraid. It's scary. Some those women, it's like a declaration of war. Isn't it true? They go in and they say, look at me, ah, and then you get like, my goodness. A man feels like, what's that woman going to do to me? From a male point of view, there is something about a man and a, a man in the audience and the woman on the stage as a belly dancer that either fascinates you and makes you feel like you're going to be nurtured by that woman, or... And lately, you gotta, you get scared when you see feel women. So they should think twice before they dance like that.
1: Yeah, and it's it's about that very thin layer of like energy and this character on stage that. Thank you for sharing from like your perspective, but it's a, I think it's in general the influence on the audience. Is it that soft feminine energy or is it that's more pushy, aggressive energy? And yes. it's cool to have a combination of both, but it yes. depends not to take to any extremes in both sides.
0: And one last thing that I'd like to say about the feminine energy, because as you know, we're living in a, in a world that is going through a lot of problems because of men. It is the men that have destroyed the earth, or that are destroying the earth. It is the men that go and take, rape the earth and go and pesticide. It's all those men, women, would never allow for the earth to be raped in the way that it is. Never. If all those people in charge all over the world are making the decision about tracking, I could go on and on and on, but you know what I'm talking about? If there were women, they would be life. one moment. Because the woman isn't there to, she's a mother, she brings life into the earth. She's soft, she's tender, she's beautiful. She, she doesn't go in that direction, a real woman. So then, we need that feminine energy into the world to heal the world. If we don't get more feminine, we're screwed. We need to embrace femininity. Maybe I'm one of the first feminists. Not saying that for the political thing, but more from the spiritual thing. That this earth really needs that energy, and the dance plays a very important role. That women should go and dance like soft women, soft and spread that beauty in the world. We will have healing energy. We need that. This planet is starving for feminine energy. That's one thing that also fascinated me about this. I thought, oh, great. We need this. We need this dance to go out there and, and heal.
1: That's it for today. I hope you have enjoyed this episode. And before you leave, don't forget to screenshot and share it with your friends. The more people get inspired, the better it is for our dance community. Until next time, keep shimming and see you soon. This episode was brought to you by the Yana Dance Club, a meeting place for committed dance enthusiasts of all levels. Most of our members shared that the club helped them to improve consistency in their training, meet new dance friends, and discover various topics through hundreds of different tutorials. This is definitely a belly dance training that becomes a lifestyle. Learn more at yanadanceclub.com, link in the show notes, or simply visit yanadanceclub.com and try for 7 days for free.